Welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. This is your host, Paul Joslin. Every preacher knows when they're teetering on the edge of a topic that will result in receiving a phone call on Monday morning. Instead of backing away from those topics, this podcast exists to work through these polarizing ideas and spark more conversation. Our hope is to address these conversations with more nuance than we might be able to in a 30-minute sermon. New episodes drop every other Monday morning, and we would love for this podcast just to be the start of the conversation. So we would love to see you share the podcast and keep the conversation going with your friends or your family. Um, You can also join us for further conversation about our podcast on social media. So you'll find us on Twitter at Waterstone News or Waterstone CC on Instagram. Today in the podcast, I'm joined again by Elliot Campbell, our student pastor. Uh, just to make a quick note, last time I called him our student ministry director. That's not his title. He is our student ministries pastor here at Waterstone. And we thought we would have a little bit of a more lighthearted conversation this week, uh, particularly after our conversation last week on hell and the afterlife. So we have all been in a situation with a friend who's praying over us or a pastor who says something in the sermon that we experience these Christian phrases or terms that kind of leave us scratching our head and wondering what does that mean? But maybe we're too afraid to ask that question. So today's podcast is to kind of, the purpose is to dive in to those phrases and terms that we may not always know what they mean. We'll be talking about some Christian jargon and some of the lighthearted phrases we hear uh, in Christian circles, but we'll also dive into uh, a definition of sorts of some of the hot topics and the big phrases that we hear in Christian circles. So we hope this conversation is helpful for you in understanding a little bit more about Christian culture, understanding some of the phrases and terms that we use, and uh, we hope that you enjoy the Monday morning phone call. All right, Elliot, thanks for jumping back on the pod this week. Uh, It's going to be a little bit more of a lighthearted conversation today because we've all heard those Christian phrases or words that when we hear them, we're not quite sure what they mean, but we're often scared to ask. And so we just sit there in the unknown and uh, feel like we're maybe not a good Christian. So today's podcast, we're going to try to unpack some of those phrases and some of those big theological words that people may not know what they mean, Uh, but might sound at times like we're making fun of Christian culture or even having jokes at people's expenses. That's not the intent of this podcast at all. There are some funny things that Christians say, but um, we really are just trying to to help bring some light to what some of those phrases mean. So for instance, uh, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but when I was a kid, I was told over and over and over again that I needed to invite Jesus into my heart. And that terrified me because as a kid, I did not know uh, how Jesus would fit into my heart. I didn't know if that meant like I needed surgery. I didn't know. A magic school bus kind of (laughs) deal. Exactly. Yeah. You start having all these imaginary ideas as a kid about what that means. And so that's just one example, right? Invite Jesus into your heart a lot to unpack there about what that phrase is and what it actually means. Um, And as a a person outside of the faith, that can maybe sound a little strange to invite someone to live inside your heart. Yeah, no, totally. um, I'm excited that we're going to ask what's it mean and then what's it matter. Um, And I I know that we'll see this as we go through. There are some um, like uh, statements that are thrown around that we, if you've been inside the church for a while, you know what it means. Right. Um, When, as soon as you invite someone to church, you become more aware of this. If you have ever had a family member or sibling 
sibling or a friend from work, you invite them to church, and you all of a sudden realize how much insider language is used from yeah. the front. And um, every time it happens, you just shrink back a little more and cringe because <laughs> you, you you all of a sudden become aware of this. So, yeah, I love that we're doing that um, and that we're going to ask what's it mean. Because some of these, um, it, there's really not a big price tag attached to, like, sure. significance. Um, and then others of them are. And some people hold them really closely and dearly to their heart. And, um, yeah, so anyway, excited that's, for the conversation. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we should also note that all of these phrases are usually pretty well intended. Like, no one says them trying to alienate people or make yes, people uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. um, it's just, like, common culture. And so yeah. all right, let's, let's bring some more into stuff. So what are some of those? List them off. So yeah. <laughs> um, love these. So backsliding or yeah. backslidden. Oh, uh-huh. man. Are you warm? Can I just pause you there? Yeah, are, you, are you backsliding, Elliot? I right was now? actually going to ask, could we talk about my personal <laughs> faith during this podcast instead of this? Um, there's lukewarm, uh, which is great because where that comes from is like many things about not quite what the text means, right? Right. Um, and then there's uh, there's spiritual warfare, um, which has got to be so bizarre to hear that phrase. Yes, um, for sure. Uh, in my walk with the Lord, um, uh, I've been released from that. Um, the preacher really brought the word today. <laughs> Man, I, I had a total God thing. Uh, my personal favorite, and by that I mean least favorite, is God said to me. Yeah, um, I, right. I totally believe God speaks to us, but I, I think when we say that, half the time it's a 17-year-old boy trying to convince the prettiest girl in the youth group that God said he should date her. Exactly. Um, I was going to say with our, our history of being youth pastors, uh-huh. you hear that all the time, like, God told me I need to break up with you, uh-huh. or God told me you yeah. need to date me. <laughs> and it's like, ah, yeah, totally. that's a lot for uh, God to be saying to you. So, yeah. and there's some other ones we talked about, um, uh, some of these before earlier before recording, but like washed in the blood is yeah. such a, um, bizarre cult like sounding phrase. It's a if very you're... graphic image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking about this, not all of these sort of insider language, it's just, um, or insider moments are just language. Sure. I think about, I invited someone to church, I remember years ago and, um, my buddy turned to me and he'd never really been in church and he said, what? He made a joke. He said, does everyone have questions? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, half the room has her hand raised. <laughs> and I, it's just a moment you realize, man, again, you become so, um, I don't know if the words, you know, anesthetized or uh, inoculated, whatever, to the norm that you right. forget that these are not normal things. Yeah, exactly. So anyway. Yeah, there's a few that I, I kind of thought of. Washing the Blood was one that, that came to mind. A uh, hedge of protection. I'm going to pray a hedge of yes. protection around you. Yeah. Um, I don't know how protective hedges uh-huh. are, but that's one yeah. we use a lot. Um, you know, even the term like fellowship uh it means something along the lines of community, but for some reason we call it fellowship, and then people outside of the church are like, what does that mean? Is that like yeah. Lord of the Rings, or yep. what is that? Uh-huh. Uh, there's also some others like righteous anger. I've heard that thrown around a lot. I've used that before. Um, praying for an open door. Check your heart. How's your heart? Where's your heart? Um, those are all yeah. pretty common phrases as well. Um, so those are some of the things that, that we hear when you hear them, why do you think this conversation is important to have? Yeah, I, I, I like that you set it up by saying, um, first, so many of these phrases, if not all of them, um, are like important phrases that we should be able to use in the church, yeah, right? right. Um, like, I think at, we do believe theologically we're washed in the blood, and, right. and we unpack what that means. We recognize, like, our goal is not to... Um, our goal is not to sound normal to the outside. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to actually be um, inclusive, and that's mm-hmm. different. So it's not that we want to modify our thoughts or beliefs. Yeah. It's that we want to be aware of our language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say for a couple reasons. One, 
I think sometimes this insider language is one, obviously isolating at sure. times. Yep. Um, and the church is not meant to just kind of be like a country club where we're all <laughs> loving this. We know what's on the menu and we just can just say, give me a number 13. We want to really be clear about what we mean. Um, but second, I think it communicates sloppy theology. Hmm. Um, Tell and, me more about that. Yeah, you brought this up. I mean, accept Jesus into your, your heart. I feel like people who have been at Waterson for a while are probably familiar with this, but that, that phrase is nowhere in scripture, right? right? Um, and yet it's something we really trust in when we think about a salvific moment or a moment of mm-hmm. conversion that is evangelicals. We really prize this kind of singular moment. Um, and then we talk about before we worship, let's pray. And so, again, not to be semantic too much, but we're distinguishing that prayer is not worship. Mm-hmm. Um, worship is led by someone in skinny jeans um, <laughs> on a stage, right? And so, so what happens unintentionally, and we're all guilty, so I myself as well, is I think we communicate sloppy theology. Yeah. And so if this is isolating um, to those who are not familiar with like this jargon, a uh, Christian jargon, and then on top of that, it might be communicating poor theology. It does mean that at times we need to press pause, kind of like this, mm-hmm. reevaluate the phrases that we're using. And I think sometimes forcing us to find new language will both include people on the outside, make us more aware of them, like I think we are supposed to be as Christians, yeah. but it will also make us pause and say, what does it mean to invite Jesus into my heart? I think mm. what that means is Christ is invited into my entire life, yeah. right? And so then obviously, obviously we can really benefit from what that means rather than throw out a cliche that doesn't make sense to us and probably doesn't, or to others, and probably doesn't hit us like it should when we right. use a powerful phrase like that. So yeah, thoughts, no, anything no, you'd add I to think, that? I think that's really appropriate to say. And I, you know, I think um, that idea of it, our message getting lost in translation, right? Like it's already pretty challenging to communicate the gospel. And then we start throwing in some phrases that maybe communicate sloppy theology or isolate people because they don't know what they mean. Then it really is hard to get across the, the truth that we're trying to proclaim. And I also think there's an element of uh, sometimes Christian culture, the church, we can lack creativity. And so Mm. we kind of just do copy and paste, right? So it's like, oh, this phrase, so I'll just say that again. And I think one of the mandates that we have as Christians in Scripture is to be creative and Mm. to find new ways to proclaim Mm. the unchanging truth of Scripture. And so that doesn't mean we we change the truth or change the core message, but we find new ways of expressing that. And I think you see that in the Gospels. I think you see that in Paul. Uh, People present this truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And we should be coming up with creative ways, phrases to say that, that actually help um, bring people in, draw people in, woo people to the truth of gospel and not leave them scratching their head and wondering why we're confusing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, it's funny too, because I can I can imagine there might be people thinking, okay, don't pick a fight with some of these phrases. Like, yeah, these are sure. time tested. And honestly, whether they're nostalgic or you're just like, I grew up in that tradition. We always said that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, don't straw man it. I think that I, I resonate with those. Um, growing up in a Christian household myself, sure, yeah, and some of these are familiar in a comforting way. The flip side is, I think really we can step back from this principle as Christians and say, but does this apply everywhere? Yeah. So there's um, there's the old expression or expression: the man married to one generation is divorced in the next. Mm. And yet, the idea that if we, anytime we timestamp something as um, if not the purest Christian expression, um, one of the best, we miss the fact that um, whatever good. is um, brand new to us right now or um, and, and challenging or controversial, um, 
I'm sorry, whatever is traditional is at one point was challenging. Yeah. And I think language works the same way. Quite literally, of all things, language evolves, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, but just like with relationships or job, you get into these ruts and over time we forget to evaluate them. So anyway, I think that's great that we're sitting down and doing this. Yeah. Is there then maybe like a few of these phrases you would like to unpack a little bit and maybe try to bring some clarity to. And cause I feel like sometimes we can just talk about it in the abstract and it might be helpful to like zero in on a, on a few. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the ones that, um, stick out to me are some of the, like, I'm praying for an open door. Mm. Um, I feel like I've been released from that. Those might be less common to be honest. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, uh, in some ways I feel like those are actually some of the more important ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Christian, uh, phrases that we throw around that really ultimately are like four words that sum up a discernment process are some of the ones that I think need to be unpacked. Yeah. Because, um, so for instance, you know, you think about a phrase like, I'm praying for an open door. Well, one, it's obviously metaphorical, and I think everyone listening probably knows right. that. Um, but two, what we're really saying there is we believe God works through circumstances yeah. and reveals things to us through natural means. Mm -hmm. So actually that's really like freeing and life-giving way of um, seeing our world is that um, I I don't have this sort of ambiguous existential moment I'm waiting on. Instead, no, my husband and I, or my wife and I, or my roommate and I, we were praying for, you know, a house to open up or um, a job and this job's not perfect, but I think it fits my skills for this season. And so I might see that as an open door of Mm -hmm. um, some way in which I feel God's answering my prayers. And even if he's not, it's still a wise decision. So some of those discernment ones. And I I think the element to build on that is that also part of the idea there is that God uh, is involved with our story and that he does lead and he does guide. I think one of the ways that that phrase can kind of be challenging at times is that we think there's like only one door and we're just waiting on this one specific Yep. for God to open. And it actually leads us into a place where we kind of, you know, analysis paralysis or yes. we stagnate yes. instead of continuing on the journey. And so there's an element there of, of good theology and a little yes. bit of sloppy theology like uh-huh. we were talking about, right? Of like, Nick talks about this a lot, but you're just waiting on God to reveal the dot to you. Yes. And then you miss that there's this whole picture going on outside of that and that God is actually drawing you into to something more. So we can sometimes get stuck waiting for God to open the door and he's saying, hey, there's another door over here. So yeah. don't just wait on that one school to give you yep. all of the signs that that's where you're supposed to go to college. Yeah. That's not necessarily how God operates. It's fun. I think in a lot of ways we catch God and this we can come back from this side uh, note uh, right after this, but we catch God on Catch-22. Uh, yeah. We say like, God, when it comes to my personal life decisions, um, well, let's just, when it comes to like how I um, operate in my marriage or what entertainment I use, um, I would like freedom in all those areas. Mm-hmm. I, I really, some of the moral confines are frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we get frustrated with God at that. And then when it comes to big life decisions, like who should I marry? What college do I go to? Things I really just want to make sure I make the tip top best yeah. decision. We get frustrated because we say, why don't you speak to that? Right. And the reality is God is kind of, reversed what we want, which is to say in moral decisions, how we care for creation, mm-hmm. care for relationships, care for the poor, he's spoken very directly. Right. And then in many issues that we have free will, that we say, well, God, I want to do my own thing with moral <laughs> issues, but then I really want to know if I should take this job because in 10 years, I don't know if the 501k is going to pay off. It's like, actually, I'm sorry, but God's given you a lot of autonomy with that. Yeah, that's and so a good point. That's really right. good. 
So these are that's why each phrase I mean that we talk about um, is important to unpack mm-hmm. because there's a lot of theology behind it. Yeah. And sometimes it's like a um, wire hanger we have to straighten out. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Yeah. Is it okay if I bring up another oh, please. Uh, yeah. comment that I think is um, yeah worth unpacking a little bit? And it's one that I think is brought up a lot, especially in circles where you start talking about justice, uh, but righteous anger. Mm. And there's so <laughs> much talk, right, of like, oh, I'm, I'm righteously angry about uh-huh. this circumstance or this situation. And I, I find it interesting because most of the times in my own life when I get really, really angry... I do not think I could call it righteous anger. Most mm-hmm. of the times when I'm angry in my life, it's over personal offense. It's over some way I've been attacked. It's over a way I've been mistreated. That's when I really rev up my anger. And in the times I've called that righteous, usually it's me justifying behavior that's probably actually not okay scripturally yeah. or according to followers of Jesus. Um, and so we've got to, I think, take a step back from that. Is Righteous anger is not a way to justify screaming or yelling at people yeah. or mistreating people. Righteous anger is really, I would say, Jesus is probably the only one who who walked this earth that lived out appropriately what righteous anger is. He was the only one who was perfect, the only one who was sinless, and so the only one probably capable of having that distinction of righteous anger. And so we should be really careful about the situations that we say, I'm justified in being angry. Yeah, I I would, you know, so I'd agree. And I see this in myself where I misinterpret what I perceive as my own righteous anger as... um, justified actions or righteous actions mm-hmm. rather than righteous anger. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I'll, I'll get anger at something that is wrong. And then I'll say things that are definitely wrong. Right. But I'll interpret my actions, and this is trivial, but it's true. The language that I use, I'm thinking about something a couple weeks ago uh, here at the church. The, the reaction I have, I'll think, well, that was righteous, even though it was wrong, because my feelings were righteous. Yeah. Um, well, arguably, potentially yeah. right, righteous, sure. right? Um, and so we, we kind of like blend those really mm-hmm. easily. So anyway, I totally agree with yeah. you. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at it biblically, the, the times when people are justified in their righteous anger uh, is when they're angry about the injustices that others are experiencing or the ways others have been mistreated. It's yeah. never really out of self-protection. Um, very True. often it's, yep. it's often in defense of the poor or the vulnerable or yeah. the people who have been mistreated or you know, women who have been taken advantage yeah. of. That's, those are the moments when Jesus demonstrates righteous anger or when the prophets demonstrate yeah. righteous anger. It's when people don't live up to God's standards or others have been, been mistreated. And so we should probably step back if we're justifying our anger at our kids or our yeah. wife as righteous. Yes, yeah. righteous anger doesn't happen on 470 or 285 yeah. or 70 <laughs> yeah. or 25. As much as I wish it <laughs> you know? did when I was yeah, driving. Totally. Uh, so, yeah, um, it's good. I, if it's okay, I want to make a distinction um, where I think so far we've been um, touching on phrases yeah. that uh, a lot of us use. I think, like we said, there's a lot of um, uh, theology, good and sometimes and oftentimes bad. Um, but kind of transitioning into um, going from Christian jargon to mm. kind of Christian suitcase words. Yeah. Um, so is that cool if we make that jump? Yeah, explain a little bit more what you mean by those suitcase words for yeah. the listeners. Yeah, so suitcase words, really, I mean, that's not just a Christian concept. It's mm-hmm. in the business world and other places. But it's it's essentially, it's one word, typically, that you can pack a ton mm-hmm. into. And really, it's not meant to be pretentious or exclusive to use the language. The goal is to get a big concept um, with a lot of nuance, a lot of detail surrounding 
getting it across in a quick word so you can make your point or um, build an argument or have a you know conversation that doesn't take an hour. It can take six <laughs> right. minutes. Probably will take an hour regardless. So <laughs> um, the thing about suitcase words and really what we'll jump into those, usually unlike these Christian kind of jargon um, uh, or Christian statements, right, um, cliches or whatever, um, they're usually suitcase words are things that we feel strongly about, or maybe the tradition you grew up in, um, like was defined by one of these suitcase words. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think we want to be careful as we jump into this, our goal really, it sounds like is not so much to build an argument on either side. Um, but actually, um, because I think everything we'll be looking at is within orthodoxy to really unpack them and get some clarity around them. Um, because they are thrown around and if, you know, say we have people who are listening who are, um, school teachers or, doctors or um, you stay-at-home moms, if this isn't your career field, like suitcase words for business, you and I might not know, Right. Um, then you're probably not going to be familiar with the suitcase words, so to speak. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a great distinction. And all of these words or phrases we're about to talk about, they do have a lot more weight behind them. And, and it's important to understand them, not just from a perspective of understanding their theology, but also the message that we're presenting to the world too. And so sometimes these words, we don't quite know what they mean. And so then we feel like we're somehow deficient as a follower of Jesus or that, you know, we can't share the gospel because what if someone has questions about these yeah, words? And, totally. and so it's just a way for us to maybe have a, a lighthearted conversation about some words that carry a lot of weight within Christian circles that hopefully uh, make all of us feel a little bit more comfortable with what yeah. some of them Yep, to are. familiarize. Yeah, exactly. So one of them, and now this is two phrases that, particularly when I was in undergrad, two words uh, that could get the room fighting uh-huh. more than anything else, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, so we just want to talk a little bit about what those two words mean. We're not going to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, I'd love for you to tell us on each of these words. What you personally think. <laughs> That'll so, be another podcast. Yeah, let's yeah. do that another time. I think, uh, yeah, we won't be nearly as nuanced as we, we might like, but some of these words will come up again in a podcast we're planning on doctrines and denominations, so I think that'll awesome. be a good further one. But yeah, so Calvinism, Arminianism, like I said, in undergrad, everyone in the biblical and theological department, that was the, the phrase that everyone was fighting over. Uh, Calvinism really began to pick up a lot of steam uh, with uh, the new Calvinism that was coming about mm-hmm. in the early uh, 2000s. So what, what would kind of you say about that phrase, that word Calvinism, that's important for, for people to kind of understand about it? Yeah, yeah. So there's kind of the textbook um, definition, which I, I might let you kind of give, um, or you know, or I can, I can go for it. But I think really... Um, without strawmanning or oversimplifying, sure. uh, it's there's two different camps on beliefs, and there's variations in some um, extremes uh, and moderates within both camps. I yep. would argue um, on how uh, someone is um, uh, basically receives salvation. Yeah. So Calvinists would um, right basically um, again real short one sentences basically would believe that God predestines a person um, to uh, have salvation. Mm -hmm. And Arminianist, again, shorthand, would be that they believe um, God leaves that that fact of whether or not they uh, have salvation, um, are going to heaven after death, uh, in the hands or the autonomy of the person. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really just really who makes the decision. Calvinists would say, we believe God. And then Arminianists would, in short, say we believe it's the power, the autonomy, whatever, is in um, the hands of the individual. Yeah, human. I think I think that's just well said. And, and I think like a, a simple phrase that I've heard that kind of helps explain 
both of those ideas is really Calvinism and Arminianism are trying to answer the same question, but that is how does God's sovereignty and human free will interact? Mm. And and what does that look like? And so a Calvinist might say that God predestines and preordains every decision that's ever made. He knows all things and um, therefore has has scripted out um, the future. Whereas an Arminianist would probably argue that God knows all things, um, but has limited his sovereignty to the point to allow humans to make choices and have mm. free will decisions. And so that's, I think, a way you could kind of boil the conversation down. There's a lot more that goes into yeah. that to unpack about, um, you know, are humans even capable of choosing good? Yeah. Um, or are we just you know, totally depraved, which would be the, the Calvinist position. Um, so there, there is, it's more complex than just that, but really that question is sovereignty and human yeah. choice and free will and how I, they interact. I think also, um, and maybe this is just because it's interesting, but looking at some of the extremes at both sides um, kind of help understand why this conversation can become so, um, uh, like, uh, fired up so fast, yeah, right? right? Especially, like you said, um, where so many people, especially theology majors, have a season <laughs> of life where um, they care a lot about this. This and is the question. <laughs> yes, they will stay up late and so confidently, and both sides will yep. very and sincerely um, build a biblical argument. I mean, got to yeah. love the ones where both sides can have multiple scriptures <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, ardent and confident. Um, but but going back to that piece, there's some extremes. So on the Calvinist uh, side, um, one of the logical extremes that some on that um, in that camp would argue would be double predestination. Yep. So it's the idea um, that uh, if God ordains who is going to heaven, who's saved, it's controversial, um, um, and this is why it's more um, inflammatory when you've got an Arminianist and a Calvinist in the same room, but if God predetermines who's going to be saved, then logically they would argue God predetermines who is not going to be mm-hmm. saved, who's going to be um, sent to uh, eternal you know, or whatever. Yeah. I guess it's different views on hell from our last yeah, podcast. That, yeah. But right, the other side though, the extreme I would say on Arminianists would say that someone can kind of, um, and, and I'm just trying not to straw man, but simplify, but kind of jump in and out of salvation, of right. being saved and not being saved mm-hmm. based off their um, beliefs and their autonomy. And so quickly you can see this, you know, someone on the other side responds really strongly, totally disagrees, and then wants to just hammer it out. Um, I, I will say the um, older a pastor is, I have noticed in my life, and I'm saying this pretty young in my career, the less they seem to really care. Yeah, um, not the fair. less they have an opinion, mm-hmm. not the less that, uh, or uh, not that they read scripture any less or, um, yeah, but the less they seem to really care because I think a lot of times um, praxis is not always influenced directly by those two opinions. Yeah, so. that's a great point. And I think that's probably where I would say the Waterstone lands um, on a lot of these things that we're going to talk about is that they um, all discuss core issues, but the um, practical element of how those core issues play out is up for discussion. And Mm -hmm. so we would then consider it a secondary issue at that point. And so Waterstone wouldn't make a hard stance on, oh, we're a a church um, of Calvinists or we're a church of Arminianists. Um, We have both uh, on staff. We have both in uh, in the seats um, on Sunday or watching at home now, I guess, with COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is uh, something that there's room for discussion and debate. Um, And yeah, so we don't have to to nail it down and and say, this is who we are. 
and, and again, I want to be clear, not that it's insignificant at all, Agreed. right? Some people would say this might be one of the most significant, but for the sake of our daily lives, uh, pursuing God's kingdom and honoring Christ, um, that, yeah, that I think we are uh, want to be really charitable with all these, but especially this one. Yeah, so, I yeah. think that's well said. All right, next one. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one that gets to kick off the question, so you have to be the one to talk. <laughs> all right, so um, defined terms, like we got pre-trip, post-trip, amillennial. People listening might be like, what are you talking about? Um, how many words did you just say? But um, give us some understanding on what people mean when they talk about Pre or post trib and all millennials. Yeah, so we've got to start with pre tribulation, post tribulation, all millennialism. That is all a conversation that's happening under the umbrella of uh, eschatology, and that's just basically a, well, maybe another word that needs definition. Word, yeah, yeah. Uh, the study of end times, how yeah. the world will end, what man's eternal destination is, what God is doing to restore the world to Himself and and all of creation. Um, that's the conversation that these are really having, and and so when when you look at scripture, there's a lot of conversation about how the world will end. What will Jesus uh, do when he comes back? When will he come back? It's a question that Christians have been answering for literally 2,000 years since Jesus left. Is you know, Paul seemed to be under the impression that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. And now we're 2,000 years after that, and that has not happened yet. And so it's mm. a conversation that uh, can be very confusing for a lot of people, I think, because there's a lot of pop culture influence in it. Uh, you have movies about the return of Christ. You have the Left Behind series. You have uh, a lot of movies like The Edge of Tomorrow or, or you know, um, about the world ending. And so it's a question we all wonder about. Christian or not, um, but this is is kind of the systematic theology of how Christians have have tried to come up with terms to discuss the different ways of viewing it. So to start, uh, pre-tribulation um, believes that the rapture. Uh, Real quick, just oh, to ahead. save time, would you just want to put a link in the podcast at the bottom to? Um, the IMDb page for Nicolas Cage's Left Behind movie. Yeah, that's a we'll great just save idea. time. Yeah, and that, we'll you, just, honestly, if you watch just that, watch that, it. Yeah. accept it. Um, <laughs> Especially if you like that pre-tribulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, the, the representation Also, also very much sarcastic, please don't do that. Um, and if not because of the, the theology, uh, more importantly because of Nicolas Cage's acting. So Fair, we just want yeah. to guard, you our, guard, guard your, heart. your heart. There you go, from <laughs> uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. So, Sorry, keep going. No, that's great. So pre-tribulation... Uh, would this is just kind of like the the basic definition, but it would distinguish the rapture uh, mm-hmm. from the second coming of Jesus, meaning that the rapture happens before Jesus' second coming, and the idea would be that it precedes a seven year tribulation. Um, basically, the tribulation is the idea that for seven years the world is going to go to a really really dark place, the worst seven years of human history ever. And throughout history, people have thought that they've been living through that or, or pot- potentially experiencing that. So, um, so just to wrap that up, basically, pre-trib is, um, you know, for God takes those believers on earth up, yep. seven years are really terrible, Christ comes back. Christ that's comes pre-trib. back. Yep, cool. that's pre-trib. Post-trib would be the idea that the rapture happens after uh, those seven years. And so it would be the idea that... Um, we all experienced the tribulation in these terrible seven years, and then at the end of that time, Christ returns and Christians go up to meet him in the clouds, and that, that both uh, Christ's reign um, and the rapture take place uh, in the same space, in the same time frame. 
And the last one that uh, we'll kind of define here is amillennialism, which is actually a little bit detached from the conversation about the tribulation. It's around mm. the idea of the millennium and this idea in scripture that there potentially will be a thousand year reign of Christ after the tribulation. Um, but amillennialism is the idea uh, that actually, I'll, I'll say this, I would probably adhere to this one the most. Um, it's misnamed because the ah at the beginning means that there's no millennium. That's actually not what the position holds. The position would propose that the millennium is actually occurring now. And so that in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, um, the kingdom of God was inaugurated on earth. Uh, and not yet like it is in heaven. So you've, if you've been around Waterstone for very long, you've heard the um, now but not yet terminology. That's kind of the uh, millennial point of view. So it understands that the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed and uh, that his apostles believed has begun uh, and is a present-day reality that will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. So that's kind of big picture of what... And we'll maybe send some links to articles if people are really interested in kind of diving in deeper to them. but Yeah, there, there's a lot there, but um, I, I think that, that's as clear as you can make, <laughs> make the opinions. So. Yeah. Let's, are you cool if we move on to... Yeah, I think so. I think everybody would probably uh-huh, appreciate yeah. moving on from those I think three. they've pressed the fast forward 30 seconds twice now. So. Yeah, that's it. Welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tune out. But that's I right. do think, uh, yeah, infant baptism would be another uh, mm-hmm. great one to kind of talk about. And I think before we dive in too much, you have to tell the story of the prank that I pulled on you in regards to infant baptism oh, four years ago at oh, the Rockies game. So, okay, well, so... Well, I want to do that and then also communicate respect. So um, I'll do my best here. Uh, Paul, um, so, all right, well, bottom line is, um, so I I grew up personally, um, and I should say my wife grew up Presbyterian with um, uh, pedo-baptism, infant baptism, it's another word for it. Um, And so married into kind of Presbyterian family, but really grew up um, with uh, believer's baptism was the only way. And when I moved out to Colorado, um, felt very strongly about that, and... um, Paul know, knew at the time and still knows that um, I basically can be baited into any argument um, if it's the right moment. So we were at a Rockies game, which was not the right moment, with our staff. <laughs> and um, Paul basically made a comment about his beliefs on pedo-baptism. And this was years ago when I was far less wise and mature than I am now, <laughs> I'm sure. And um, I took the bait because that's what I do. What I didn't realize was I didn't really believe him. Um, but then he took out a graded paper he had online where he had built an argument for infant baptism. Yes, I did. And at that point, I was totally convinced that he believed this and completely, I mean, hooking, like the the um, fishing hook was just in, and I was I mean, there ready was blood to, in the water. You were, was, you were ready for a fight. It was, <laughs> and I was ready to go, and I did go to town. And at this point, the rest of the staff kind of paused watching the Rockies get beat by some team and, <laughs> um, and turned to me and just watched basically me until I was blue in the face. Anyway, the end of the conversation... Paul ended up uh, revealing that he had written the paper solely to be able to <laughs> convince me that um, he held that position and then later uh, get my goat, which he did. So, yeah. well done. That's pastor prank, you know. Uh, that's, yeah. That's how and uh, how lame is that, right? That's like, <laughs> ha-ha, so I tricked lame. you into thinking right. I had this theological conviction. Um, so but I could get you to fight with yeah. me at a Rockies game. How no. lucky people don't have to work at churches. So It's true. Um, all right. So that all aside, infant baptism, what would you kind of say? I know you're a little more nuanced in your perspective now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the truth is it's it really is one to say this, because um, we'll have people listening, and I want to be really respectful, like I said, um, 
Infant baptism is 100% without any doubt within the confines of orthodoxy, right. small o orthodoxy, which means um, to be baptized in, as an infant, um, to believe in infant baptism and desire to baptize your children is very much within orthodoxy. Um, Waterstone is a, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a church where I think we have Baptist roots and traditionally um, really Baptists have been, there's an old joke, what's the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian? Yeah. And the answer is um, Presbyterians can read. <laughs> and the joke is that um, two things. Traditionally, Presbyterians have kind of had been this white-collar culture, sure. um, but uh, that there really are a lot of similarities. Well, one of the big theological differences has been the view on baptism. Sure. So um, we have Baptist roots, and really um, uh, that means that we um, preach and teach uh, believers' baptism. So um, in short, the uh, the thought on believer's baptism is that you want someone, a baptism comes after conversion, and so you want someone to be able to um, uh, confess faith in Christ and be a believer before they're baptized. That's really it. That's what we see in scripture, so we go for it. Um, Presbyterian, or really paedo-baptism, um, would parallel baptism in the New Testament as a sign of being part of the covenant of uh, believers. And they parallel it specifically with circumcision in the Old Testament. Right. So um, they would say, yeah, this this is um, deeply rooted in not just Christian tradition, which puts it within orthodoxy in many ways, but really within biblical tradition that there's a parallel between how when a child was born, you didn't wait for it to be an adult and confess faith in the one true God of Israel. Mm-hmm. You would early on, um, if it was a male, circumcise it, and it would be a sign that was part of the community of faith, and it would grow up and then confess um, you know, the God of the Israelites as the one true God. Yeah. So they would say in um, uh, uh, the New Testament context, that sign is baptism. Um, and it's both for male and female children. And obviously there's a pastoral kind of need that this rose out of. You can share that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of where it came, I would say it it began as a practice about 2,000 years after the apostles. We have record of of that. But um, it really caught on to kind of popularity when a lot of infants were were dying. And the question became, do these infants uh, end up in heaven or hell? And so the Catholic Church was still the prominent uh, church at the time. And so they um, made sure that infants who were dying were baptized so that that question could be answered. And so it was a pastoral um, bent to it for sure, answering that. And it's also important to know that uh, most people, I would caveat all this conversation with most people, um, you have the extremes, but there's nothing magical Mm -hmm. um, about the water. It doesn't wash away sin. It's not always equated with salvation. I think how you spoke it uh, was really eloquent in that it really is the belief that they are, are ushered into the covenant community. Um, it hasn't made the decision for them, but it's almost like a profession of faith that they are trusting God will act to bring this person to salvation. Yeah. So that's kind of how I've heard it nuanced yeah. a little bit. Well, you know, I'll interview students, obviously, sometimes uh, or always before they get baptized, and I'll ask them um, two questions. One, um, can you say, say you, you know, you have an experience, um, with God where you realize, man, I believe in Jesus. I think he's, he's, um, the Lord and you're driving to go tell your friends and you get hit by, you know, a Mack truck and mm-hmm. you end your life. You haven't been baptized. Are you still saved? Right. Are you going to heaven? It's a really crass, crude way of looking at it, but it gets down to the question yeah. I need to 
figure out what they think. And the obvious answer is, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy on the cross next to Jesus, right? right. I'm pretty sure no one sprinkled water on him or right. like, all right, we got to get that guy off and baptize him <laughs> real quick. Yeah. So, so obviously, um, baptism, salvation, it's really important that regardless, mm-hmm. it's not a salvific issue. The second question I want to ask um, students, though, is, um, you know, could you be baptized by yourself? Could you mm-hmm. baptize yourself or just one other person? And, and the honest answer, again, is no. Yeah. Um, and it's because it is supposed to be this public profession, right? Yeah. It's like wearing a, a ring, obviously, right. where um, I can take my ring off. It turns out I'm still married. Um, but it's a sign to the world that I'm not. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think about I was working uh, with a local church in Vietnam years ago, um, and I got to see a baptism in a house. And mm. it was literally just filled up a bathtub. Mm. And we crammed like yeah. 18 people into this small bathroom yeah. um, in the doorway. It was really sweet. And the pastor there baptized this woman. And mm-hmm. so you're right. I think where it's at or what water you use is really irrelevant. Um, but the fact that Christ has called us to do this, to repent and be baptized, um, yeah. is yeah, where that comes from. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very important day, no matter when it happens. And it's as you said and alluded to, it's um, an external sign of an internal reality is yeah. the way you often hear yep. it described. That and that's um, a, a succinct way to kind of to summarize that. Um, the last thing I would say about that is that um, there's kind of a something that I think both bring to the table that, that mm. are important to acknowledge. And one is, um, you know, believer's baptism, as you called it, uh, depends on the decision a person makes to mm. profess faith in Christ. And so there's an emphasis that there is a, a cost to discipleship. There's mm. a cost to choosing to follow Christ. And uh, that's really important that people make that choice and understand the weight of that choice. Um, what often can get missed in that is that that's a communal choice. And that's mm. one of the things I think is a, a beautiful representation of the covenant th- theology or infant baptism is that there is a recognition that the community of believers matters, um, that, that gathering together in hopes of the next generation uh, continuing on the faith and that our decision is not just for ourselves but for the community of, of the people of God. Yeah. And so I think there's a beauty that we can actually both, um, when we actually sit down and, and stop yelling at each other about some of these terms, that we can actually see there's yeah. something to be gained from, from each mm-hmm. perspective even if how we practice it falls a little differently. So Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. All right, I think last one. Let's do it. All right, so um, the last one is a phrase you've probably heard uh, a lot at Waterstone over the last few years. Uh, it's complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Excuse me, egalitarianism. That's egalitarianism. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. You're good. You're good. Yeah, that was rough. Uh-huh. Um yeah, so it basically it has to do with scripture's view of the role of men and women. Um, specifically, I would I would like to reserve that to the conversation within the church mm-hmm. and the family. I think that's important to know. Yeah. Sometimes people have have broadened that these categories to talk about the role of women in the workplace, and yeah. and I'm not yeah. sure that that's always super helpful. So yeah, to maybe start out, um, I know we think a little bit differently on this, but at the core we have the same heart. How would you maybe talk about those? two terms. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so first off, I would say um, what makes this conversation so difficult is I think there's like, I think this is Nieberg's uh, expression, real versus ideal, mm. right? So um, so both camps kind of have the real that I think are oftentimes what the other camp um, 
criticizes or argues against, and and yet they both have the ideal, and I would say that's mm. the theology. Mm. Um, and I think to be fair to both camps, you want to stick with the ideal, you want to stick with the belief, um, because anecdotally people um, can twist or turn that. Yeah. Um, so with complementarianism, um, it's really the belief, uh, again, shorthand here, but that men and women have complementary roles, that they're created with um, uh, a separate set of... Um, or in general, generally speaking here, um, that they have complementary um, roles in the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily to say that a man couldn't fulfill a woman's role um, because he's incapable or a woman couldn't fulfill, and in this case, really nuts and bolts, um, um, certain specific roles of leadership. But it's to say that for whatever reason, um, the way God's created or structured the church is that certain roles are reserved for males, especially Mm. like, for instance, whether it's an elder or the senior pastor of a church is the most common um, view. And and then within complementarianism, there's kind of the sliding scale. So there's what's called hard complementarianism, Mm -hmm. which would probably say, you know, that um, roles um, like uh, anything that holds the title of pastor or um, uh, responsibilities like preaching... Mm -hmm. um, specifically to a, a adult congregation, that those would be reserved for a male. And then there's soft complementarianism, which would say, for some reason, there's some model of spiritual headship, whatever that means only within the church, and that um, the spiritual authority, um, the highest level of spiritual authority of a local congregation is reserved for the role of a male. So really... It, um, there's a sliding scale there. Do you want to kind of explain egalitarianism or is yeah. there anything you'd add to complementarianism? No, I think you you, you explained that well. Um, and it's important to know that I think it, particularly in our current cultural climate, um, egalitarianism probably sounds more appealing to some or, or sounds uh, like more exciting, but really both camps would have scriptural Backing for for yeah. how they hold these positions, yeah. but um, that all that said, egalitarianism. Oh my goodness! I'll say it for you. Just tell them what this. Yeah, egalitarianism. egalitarianism. Yeah. Uh, keep putting in too many T's. Right. Is uh, another phrase for that is is biblical equality, mm. or it's the view that in Christian circles, um, men. Uh, and authority and responsibility are equal to women. Um, and so there, it would be a little bit of a contrast between complementarianism in that there's no distinction really in roles in the home or in the church. Um, women can, can hold just as much authority or responsibility um, in preaching and teaching as someone um, that, that would be a, a male. So that would kind of be the, the yeah. nuts and bolts of, of how I, that is. I would um, I'd point this out, and I'm, I want to be clear. I mean, I feel like I can say this having come from um, uh, raised in a very, like, probably the hard complementarian mm-hmm. side of things. Um, having had these conversations over and over, I, I don't think you can um, look at all of Scripture and how it speaks to all passages of um, uh, male and female's relationships within the church um, and clearly say, um, my position um, does not conflict with any part of scripture. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and, and you know, uh, yeah, even the most conservative um, reading some scripture, I think you still have to reconcile. There are some really challenging parts of scripture um, that you don't even have to read into mm-hmm. to say, I'm still not sure that yeah. that um, agrees. Um, yeah, I, I, this, obviously, you're right. And the other thing is that's tough about this is it can become really personal. I mean, mm-hmm. we're two men talking about this. Yeah. Um, but... There are women who legitimately have God-given gifts, I think, yeah. um, to serve the local church. 
and um, and can read scripture and think I'm not I'm not sure where I um, where I fall on this scale of complementary egalitarianism, sure. um, and and then they have to yeah it, my point is to say for us it's an easier conversation absolutely um, and even though you know your your wife is a professional who's slays it in the um, professional world and my, obviously Madison's my wife who works here at church at, as a pastor I think um, even for them it's a more personal Absolutely. question so yeah which is probably why we're, we're kind of handling this with with gloves a little bit I yeah. know this is a, another conversation that we plan on having a, a little bit further dialogue about in the future on the podcast yeah. I think it's a really important uh, question for the church to get right and to speak on well uh, again just given our, our current cultural climate and questions about women and how they're treated and the church should be the leader in that space. And I think there's room for both positions to, um, to lead in that space. But, uh, yeah, so that, uh, that will probably be a a conversation that we'll probably bring in some of our, our female pastors in on. And, um, but you know, as a church, our position would probably lean, uh, definitely more towards egalitarianism. Yeah. We tend to put women in roles of preaching and teaching. Yeah. Um, we don't reserve the title of pastor um, only for yeah. men. Even elder is is we have women serving on our elder board, and so um, yeah, we kind of fall in that. Yeah, camp. I, yeah, I think it's important to say our our priority maybe is twofold, and we don't see it as we see a false dichotomy to have to choose is um, to um, to support, to empower, and to encourage women in leadership. Yeah, and to um, allow um, both perspectives mm-hmm. um, to be held charitably on staff yeah. and here at, here at Waterstone. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and so, yeah. The, the goal, I think, um, both a complementarian and an egalitarian would have would be to affirm women um, in yeah. the roles that God has created for them. They may have, again, different definitions of practically how that plays out, um, but that is the ultimate goal is for uh, the flourishing of, of women in our churches. Yeah, so, yeah 100%. Um, yeah. So hopefully this conversation uh, was helpful for you today and as we kind of dive through some of those uh terms that, as Ellie said, suitcase terms have a lot of, of baggage with them at times, um, and some of the more lighthearted uh, Christian jargon that you hear. Thanks again for listening to the Monday Morning Phone Call podcast. We hope that this show will spark more conversation and that you'll share this episode with a friend or two. As I said at the beginning, you can also join us on Instagram or Twitter to continue this conversation and share your thoughts and opinions with us on what we talked about today. This podcast was hosted uh, by myself, Paul Joslin, and today's show was edited and mixed by Phil Nelson, produced by Emily Kloss, and the graphic uh, on the logo was designed by Lane Gerking, a graphic design artist. Special thanks to Elliot again for joining me and sharing his thoughts and stories on some of the things that we've heard Christians say that have left us wondering what they mean. We'll be back for another episode in two weeks.